Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to Call I Guess. I'm Candace. I am Tyler. And we are back. So, still a little bit early for the seasonal episode, but yep. we will do something so we're not just constantly on hiatus for you guys and leaving Stefan with the memories of our last episode. <laughs> as much fun as that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so... I know. We'll just re-upload last <laughs> episode for him. <laughs> Give it a different title, see how things go. See how long it takes before he realizes it's the same episode. <laughs> Kid, of course. Uh, but let's go ahead and get started with our anime news. Um, so, if my thing will over, uh, production company Doga Cabo has been temporarily closed due to staff diagnosed with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the production company that is overseeing uh, Shikimori is not just a cutie this season. Oh. Um, it's a bit of a shame. No. I haven't heard if it's going to be delayed yet, but I anticipate it will be. Yeah, understandably. So, there's that. Uh, speaking of studios, the trailer for To Your Eternity dropped this week, and it seems that it implied that they are going to be, uh, season two will be done by a new studio, as well as a new director for season two, so. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it lives up, because it's been one year since the debut of episode one of the first season and to your eternity was incredible so hopefully season two will live up to those expectations yeah yeah because they left us with quite the cliffhanger uh and then just a little bit of news here square enix has announced kingdom hearts 4 let's move on yeah <laughs> it's not really anime news because at this point it's just like it's, it's live action it's kind of anime news the fourth game looks like it's it looks more like Final Fantasy than Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Yeah. So Whatever. For those people that are excited. Congrats. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be a good game. I haven't even played the first one. Yeah, I haven't either. I loved the art style of the third one though, so I think that's why I'm a little bit bitter about this, because it looks gorgeous. It really does, but I just I I miss that art style, you know? Yeah. Uh, with that, we're probably going to have a pretty short episode because we decided to do a movie night this yep. week to get us just kind of into the seasonal anime week before we are no longer capable of watching films because we'll just be completely consumed with the seasonal anime. There's so many there shows so this season, There's so many guys. shows. So this might be our last short episode for a bit. Yeah. But I tried to pick a film that I didn't think that either of us had watched but i owned mm-hmm. and apparently you've already seen it i did already see it yeah so this is my first time watching it uh continuing with all of the uh ghibli films in my steel book collection i need to buy more <laughs> still still looking for that covetous uh grave of the fireflies oh my steel god book. yes i need the steel book grave of the fireflies i need it you guys 
The cheapest one I found is $320. Oh, yeah. rough. So one that I did manage to get when it first went on sale, I got it from Target, was from Up on Poppy Hill. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited about this one because, you know me, I love historical period pieces. Uh, particularly, I grew up watching war films with my dad. So especially things centered around like World War II. And From Up on Poppy Hill takes place post-World War II and post-Korean War. Uh, It takes place in the 1960s, around the time that Japan was hosting the Tokyo uh, Summer Olympics. Yeah, um, I believe this takes place 1963, because 1964 is when the Olympics were. (laughs) And, you know, obviously it takes years leading up into the Olympics for the, the country to get ready for it. Yeah. And and kind of the one of the big themes of this movie is out with the old and in with the new. Mm-hmm. And that was that was kind of the Olympic centric, you know. They even state at one point like, hey, I know we're all excited for the Olympics, but let's not make this whole out with the old and with the new the the big thing. Yeah. So the Major central focus of the plot is about uh, not really a small town, but a town just outside of Tokyo is basically being affected by this big boom of uh, post-world industrial industrialism. The like big uh, economic miracle that happened in Japan, basically during it started around the 60s and then it went all the way through till the 80s and even the 90s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that now that Japan was no longer a warring country, they were focusing more on their image and tourism and becoming part of the you know bigger world. And with them getting the Summer Olympics in the 60s, that was kind of the big spike in motivation for their government to really try to create this positive image of their country. Uh, the problem with this is that... A lot of people in Japan still very, very much cared about their history and their culture, and they didn't really want to give those things up. And the generation of students entering, you know, high school around that time were the first generation of children that weren't alive during the war. So for them, a lot of this is that they don't want to live in a country that's just focusing on the future. They want to remember where they came from and their history and their family's history. So this started the uh, student riots that became really famous in the 70s in Japan. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was like the early, early stages of those student riots. And so the biggest focus of this story is really about uh, the three main characters who are trying to save an old building attached to their school that's known as the, I believe, the Latin Building? Yeah. Yeah, which has been part of uh, their town since the turn of the century. Um, longer than that, I think, because mm-hmm. when, when uh, what's her name, the main character? Uh, what's, I'm terrible. Umi. With Umi. When yeah. Umi is like, taking Shun on a tour of her house, you know, she's like, oh, this was, uh, you know, this was an old hospital that was made at the, at the turn of the century. Yeah. And and Shun mentions, like, hey, I think the club building is even older than that. Yeah. So, like, it's it's an old building. 
Well, I don't know if uh, he meant that the building was older. I think he meant more like, compared to the Latin building, this looks brand new because she was keeping it in good shape. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. So I think the buildings are about the same age. That they both were built around the same time that the town was built. But her family just kept this house in such good condition that it looks brand new. Okay. Yeah. That was what I thought the line implied. That, that, that would make sense as well. Yeah, especially because earlier in the movie, her grandmother tells her, like, oh, you're doing a really good job of maintaining the house. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it seems like her grandmother's the current owner of the house, and she wants to pass it down to her family, but she wants to make sure that people know how to take care of it so it lasts a long time. Which is a really, really common thing in Japan. Like, a lot of people tend to want to, like, hold on to their, like, most valuable possessions for a long time so they can pass it down to their kids and their kids can continue to take care of it. And that their kids' kids will continue to take care of it. And So there's just a lot of, like, family relics in Japan that are just, like, four or five generations old and still look brand new. Yeah. Like, I recently watched a video that was talking about uh, kimonos being a really common thing like that. Like, uh, back in, like, older Japan, like, it was pretty common for women to wear their kimonos down all the way to the point where they would just scrap it for rags. But then, at some point, when kimonos stopped being less common, they kind of became this thing that was only, like, for the rich. So any woman that had a kimono wanted to take care of it for as long as possible and pass it down to her daughter and then pass it down to her daughter's daughter and all that. So I feel like the buildings in this are kind of treated the same way. Okay. But it meant that, you know, Umi grew up with this strong respect of their town's history and why it's important to preserve it. Yeah. So. So the majority of the film is really just about their plan to preserve this building, which causes her to meet Shun who's in charge of the school newspaper and uh, basically the publishing club. I don't think they just met. I think they're, they've been friends for a while. Yeah. But it doesn't really explain much of their history before. Yeah, to me it seemed like he was an idiot. I mean, he is an idiot. <laughs> he's, he's a high school boy. Come yeah. on, let's face <laughs> Boys it. Boys are idiots. <laughs> Boys are idiots. But yeah, so the two of them start to become closer due to trying to preserve this building and prevent the government from tearing it down and building a new building. And the two of them start to get a little high school crush on each other. Only for him to discover that a photograph she has of her father is the same one that he has where he was told that his biological father is also in that photo. And when he goes and checks the records, he finds out that her father is legally listed as his father as well. Yeah, so he's just like, hey, um, we're siblings. It's, it's not 2015 yet, so that's not an in thing. <laughs> Let's say, you know, we just be friends, you know, kind of lose our feelings for each other here. Oh, the original Emoto situation. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That's crazy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's a lingering question kind of going on with the two characters as to whether or not they're actually brother and sister. The problem is, is that the man in the photo, her dad, died in the Korean War. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he wasn't part of the war. No. He, he was captain of a shipping ship. Yeah. So, you know, he just kind of got caught up in the in the aftermath. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Unfortunately. He's caught in the crossfire. Just, just, a, just a casualty. Yeah. So, uh, because of that, though, uh, her father taught her about, like, flag signals and all that. And when she was waiting for him to come home as a small kid, she would raise flags up on their apartment balcony so that way he would see them and come home. But he never comes home, and so every day she raises the flags at her grandma's place, which is the house up on Palm. Hill. Oh my god, there's a connection. <laughs> That's it. They said the name of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this movie is really, really cute. It is. And we won't spoil too much of it for you guys because it's just one of those like there's not a lot to spoil, but it's just really, really fun. Yeah. Um, it is a little bit slower paced as mm-hmm. well. Um, it's not... It, it's not as slow paced as The Wind Rises, you know, like the other, another I, Ghibli film. I love The Wind Rises, though. I think that's the one wind, of my favorite. The Wind Rises is good. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's really slow paced. It's it's mm-hmm. not your, you know, typical anime film. Yeah. So, just just a heads up if you decide to watch the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little bit slower. Yeah. So the pacing of this movie actually reminded me a lot of the movie, uh, This Little Corner of the World, or Our Little Corner of the World. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very similar themes. That one takes place, uh, during World War II, though. But I love these kind of films that show more of, like, the civilian life during a lot of these historical events. Because, especially from, like, our perspective, like, the Western perspective or American perspective... We don't really learn a lot about, like, what Japan was like at that time in history. I can't wait for you to see Grave of the Fireflies. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) We will watch it someday. But yeah, like, we don't really get to see a lot of, like, this whole... Just what it was like to be a normal citizen in that part of the world during that time. We don't really think too much about it because... Anytime we learn about war and history classes or even films here in America... Usually other countries are just kind of painted as enemy or ally. We don't really get to see a lot of what their daily lives were like. And I think that's one of the best things that came from anime starting to become popular and Japan starting to share their history with the world is that they got to show people what life was actually like at the time. In fact, the original manga for Up on Poppy Hill was written by a mangaka who lived during the student riots in the 1970s and a lot of like his reason for creating this manga was because he wanted to kind of capture what it was like living in a town like that growing up okay yeah so it was originally published in a uh shoujo manga magazine and for a while ghibli didn't really know whether or not they would get the license to make this into a movie because a lot of people were worried that it is a slower paced movie and that it's not particularly an exciting time period for most people it it's a bit really it's a mix between like history and slice of life 
But with Whisper of the Heart ending up being such a successful film, they got the rights to make this one as well, since both were published from the same uh, manga magazine. Yeah. So yeah, this one was directed by uh, Goro Miyazaki, not uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, yeah, Hayao Miyazaki was in the credits. I did notice that he was um, he was part of planning. I think is is where I saw it. Yeah. So not you know overseeing everything, but he did have a role. Yeah, I think at the time he was still listed as like uh, basically the main person in charge of the studio, which means that all films that were coming out of the studio at the time were basically under his supervision. But I don't think he had any kind of, like, active role okay. in directing it. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, like, a technical thing. I see. It's the closest he'll actually come to retiring. Like, like, sure. like executive producer. Yeah. <laughs> Except I don't know if he had to throw money at this. Like... <laughs> yeah. All right, fair. Yeah, it could have also been that they just had his name on it because having Hayao Miyazaki's name on the project could have guaranteed that they were able to make it. Yeah. Because he's just so well-known at this point. But yeah, uh, all the credit really does go to Goro Miyazaki, which I believe he also did, uh, what's it called, Tales of something? I don't know. His... Uh, Tales from Earthsea? Yeah, Tales from Earthsea, which was not a very well-received movie at all. Like, most people are like, that's that was Studio Ghibli's failure film. I actually haven't even seen it. I have. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd consider it the failure film. I mean, I don't think it's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not as... It's not as good, I guess. It's not as classic mm-hmm. as Ghibli's other films. Yeah. So I believe with him having such a heavy hand in both this one and Whisper of the Heart, he kind of found more of his niche in the filmmaking industry where he's making more things that are about uh, people's connections and less about like the fantasy like Hayao Miyazaki does. Yeah. Because I feel like Hayao Miyazaki is, does this like almost fairy tale style thing when it comes to creating his films and he really wants to capture like this idea of like childhood and innocence and a lot of that where Goro seems more to want to create kind of more coming of age stories and just kind of showing us like what life actually felt like growing up as opposed to living in a fantasy yeah so a lot of his movies feel less like magical and more just like good for your soul Mm Mm-hmm. so and this one definitely fits in that category because there's nothing really like super like, oh my gosh, look, everything's just beautiful and elegant and I swear there's a spirit in the water or some kind of thing, you know, like it, there's nothing really supernatural or I guess fantasy filled about this series. Yeah. The character's hair doesn't lift when they look at each other. <laughs> They don't get that sparkle in that their eyes when they realize something, you know? They just, they're just real kids, just experiencing life as it comes at them. Yeah. But there's still something very, very enjoyable about everything, and it still very much has that Studio Ghibli vibe. 
especially in moments where the characters are really trying to come into their own and it almost feels like the animation becomes a bit more weightless and they can just kind of do whatever they want, particularly the debate scene showcased a lot of that classic Miyazaki-style animation, as well as the bicycle scene. Yeah. That and the the seven recycled faces. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, a lot of people no, have the same no, face no, syndrome. No offense to Ghibli, but you, you have very similar faces. Yeah. <laughs> I do think a lot of that stemmed from the manga as well, so... Okay. Because this was an older published manga from a very small magazine. Yeah. So. But yeah. Uh, basically, this is a movie about Shun and Umi wondering if they can fall in love or if that... Or, or if they have to just be like, no, we're siblings, let's just stay friends. Yeah, incest is not wincest. <laughs> No, it is not. <laughs> We're not in that corner of anime. G- give it a few more decades. <laughs> and that is why Miyazaki said anime was a mistake. <laughs> uh, yeah. I forget what he was talking about. I forget too. <laughs> I still love that he's just this grumpy old man, though. I... Oh boy, the contrast between it is fantastic because, like, Miyazaki is just, like, this grumpy old man, but then, like, all of his productions are just, like, these these fantastic, happy, mystical production, you know, like, things. Mm Mm-hmm. But then you get, like, uh, what's his name? Junji Ito. Junji Ito, who is the exact opposite. Dark, creepy, you know, like, manga. And he's just, like, the most wholesome person on Earth. Yeah. I remember that clip from Crunchyroll where uh, he was watching Azumanga Daio. And there's that clip where she gets bitten by the cat, and he's like, that was really scary. That was very scary. Or when they were trying to teach him how to nay-nay. Yeah. It's great. I think that's I'm, funny. Honestly, I want to see them try something with Miyazaki like that. He wouldn't. No, I... he wouldn't. He's too grumpy. Yeah, I feel like he has some kind of restraining order against the people at Crunchyroll. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and soon to be us as well, probably. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, who am I kidding? He doesn't notice. He doesn't know we exist. Not allowed to go within 500 feet of Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> that, that's how you know we made it. If we ever get a restraint. <laughs> that's how you know our podcast is being listened to by people. Right. But yeah, so... Like I said, there's not a lot to talk about with this film, which is the one downside to our little film nights is that even when I really, really, really like the movies, it's just kind of like, how do I talk about this without just talking about the whole movie? Because yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things I think you should just go watch and go enjoy it. Uh, I don't think this film's going to be it for everybody because, like I said, I think a lot of its charm comes from the fact that I did grow up watching like war movies and 
I do really, really love people dramas, and I love, like, historical period pieces, it, it, and I love... It definitely helps if if you're a history nerd. Yeah. You know, like, you know, people who are all into, like, the New Age bullshit aren't, aren't gonna be as interested, most likely. Yeah. I love watching anime that isn't just about Japanese history because I feel like a lot of like anime coming out recently that's about Japanese history has a very heavy like fantasy element to it. I like ones that feel more like either they were made by people that are extremely passionate about that time or people that were literally living in that time and wanted to create something that showcased it. Yeah. Kind of creating this like almost time capsule of that moment and I think that's why I loved so many like war films growing up too is most of them were made by people that lived during that time and wanted to showcase this is what the world used to be like and we're gonna put it in a digestible film that focuses on a story that's easy to pay attention to while all these historical elements are happening in the background. And that's very, very much what this film is like. Ultimately, it's just the story of two kids and their first crush. But there's so much happening behind the scenes that's just like, this is what school used to be like. This is what family roles used to be like. Uh, Even like the idea that women were going out and studying and getting careers and doing all these big things was just kind of like a lot of people were like wow no what right why like, aren't you just like, getting married like, like like at one point umi mentions that you know oh maybe i'll become a doctor and it's like wow in the 60s um i mean i'll have to look it up to be sure but mm-hmm. i didn't think women were allowed to become doctors well her mom was her mom was studying be- to become a doctor and one of the women that lived in the house with her was also studying to become a doctor okay Yeah, so it's not like it was completely unheard of, but it was like one of those things where it's like a lot of people in Japan were just kind of like, well, why would you want to go do that? Like, you could just settle down and get married and just live at home and make, like, food all day. Why would you want to go out and work? And I know working women was actually really, really common in Japan in World War II. It was actually more common for women to be in the workplace in Japan than it was in America. Which is hilarious because, you know, we all know of uh, that one famous poster, I forget the the character's name, Mm -hmm. but basically, you know, urging women to join the workplace here in America, you know? Yeah. During World War II, so. And a lot of that was mostly because they wanted more men to be in the military, and they didn't want men to be like, well, who's going to stay here and work? So the answer the government came up with was women. Women are going to take over your jobs so you can go fight. <laughs> but in Japan, it was just kind of like one of those things where, like, women are just like, this is this is just something we have to do, you know? We're, we're helping our country by working. And a lot of that was things like writing and sending messages and uh, translating things into different languages. So women in Japan in World War II were actually getting really good educations because... They couldn't ask men to do it when they were already asking men to be soldiers. So they needed women to do it. Mm-hmm. Women had very big government jobs during World War II as well. 
So because of that, after the war was over, a lot of women wanted to go study more. They're just like, well, now I don't have a reason to do this other than I just enjoy it. And now I have this education and I want to go do something with that education. Well, shit, the boy I liked died in the war. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the main character, Umi, her mom was even studying abroad in America. Meaning that she did speak several languages. Yeah. So. I do want to point out one thing that I found kind of weird in this film, though, is that at the very beginning she mentions, like, oh, these are, this is my family, as I have to take care of my little sister and my little brother. And then I'm like, halfway through the film, I was thinking, I'm like, didn't she have a little brother? She did. You see him in the background. Yeah. He doesn't have a single line of dialogue. He does. He has one line of dialogue. Does he? That is when her mom comes home and he's eating the beef jerky. Oh yeah, he's he's like, <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever tasted. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, kid, it's just beef jerky. <laughs> well, I can't imagine beef was super common. Though, no, no, the time. it probably wasn't. And America was just kind of beef, like. Yeah, actually, from my understanding, is this beef is still very uncommon in Japan. So. Yeah, like I know chicken and fish are very common. Yeah. But they get the expensive beef, though. When they get beef, they're just like, this cow lived a better life than I did. Just so I can eat it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, they care a lot about their food. Like, the beef there is so good, you can eat it raw. Like, that's how much they care about their animals. That's how much they care about their food industry. Like, they're not like, we're just pumping this out for the general public as fast as we can, like they do here in America. They're just kind of like... No, you'll wait. You'll sit down and you'll wait. You want to eat crap? We're importing that from other countries, all right? You want something from Japan, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is also why eating things like raw eggs and fish is really common there as well. Because they care a lot about the quality of their food. Well, uh, it's just here in America that eating raw eggs is frowned upon there's other countries where it's not super common but most of those countries are european centric yeah so like that's that's what i'm saying like like it's in in the view of the world eating raw eggs is more uncommon than eating or eating raw eggs is more common than eating uh, cooked eggs yeah but a lot of it's not as it's not as frowned upon as it is here in the U.S. Yeah. A lot of, like, major recipes that use raw egg is, like, a major component is Japan, though. Like, Japan kind of made that whole thing famous. Yeah. Yeah. So. Or at least they utilize it the most. Because they're just like, here's this dish that you could eat with a raw egg, or this dish you could eat with a raw egg, or this dish you could eat with a raw egg, or you could just go eat a raw egg. It's fine. Like... Uh, yeah, I'm a filthy American. I like my eggs cooked. Yeah, I would try it. I just, not from America. <laughs> if I go to Japan, I would like it's, to try it. It's 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 a texture thing for me. Eggs are slimy and weird. No, not for me. Yeah, you're weak. I want to go to Japan and eat raw eggs. No, no. <laughs> uh, raw eggs. Not gonna do it. I'm no, doing it. Natto. Not gonna do it. Natto I won't be able to do. <sighs> no, I've smelled natto before. I can't. But I will go to Japan and I will eat rags. Okay. Yeah. Just because I'm curious. I'm curious what I'm missing out on. 
All right. So, but yeah, that's another good thing about this being a Ghibli film is the food. Oh yeah, the food. <laughs> Ghibli food always looks good. Yeah. Like, I think the only films that have topped the Ghibli food, like, epicness or the visuals for food is Makoto Shinkai's films. But there's just something so loving about Ghibli food. Like... What was that one, uh, show? It was on Netflix that we watched. I don't think it was a Shinkai film. But like it started off cooking food, and yeah. it was it was like the most delicious food I've the, ever seen yeah. animated. The whole show is just like three short OVAs, and it's like nothing but food. I don't yeah. remember what's called, but we did an episode about it. Yeah, yeah. Go through our archives and figure out what we're talking about, because <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> we've been doing this for we, too long. We've forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I think if Makoto Shinkai is like that, like restaurant commercial quality of appeal when it comes to food uh miyazaki is like that homemade food yeah yeah there's just there's something so special about it and this show is absolutely no exception the rice in this show looks so good so it always makes me want to try whatever they're cooking in particular the very beginning where she's making like fried eggs just on top of like looks like pieces of ham yeah. What is that called? Okonomiyaki? Yeah. The, the the egg thing, the egg dish? Yeah. I'm probably wrong, but... You're probably wrong. Her brother did have another line. He said he had a sports day at school and he needed another plate. See, that's how that's how forgettable this stupid kid is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he had a couple lines, but like... Seriously, halfway through the film, I was just like, what happened to her brother? No, it's just, it's so funny because, like you mentioned, she's, you know, at the beginning of the film, she's like, oh, I'm taking care of my whole family because my mom's in America and my dad's not in the picture. And it's like, okay, we understand that part of it. But why isn't your grandma at least helping? I think she's hit that age where she just can't function because they, she did hire like a housekeeper why isn't the housekeeper i guess obviously the housekeeper is helping because yeah. they're a housekeeper but like yeah it seems there's like... there's like seven other adults in this building and none of them is is able to boil some water for rice right <laughs> yeah it seems like the housekeeper comes in right when she goes to school and then leaves shortly after she gets back so she's mostly just there to take care of the place while She's obviously studying and doing what she should be doing. But she's expected to do, like, breakfast to then take care of dinner. Yeah. But yeah, because she mentions to her grandma that, you know, she doesn't feel like the workload is too much because they have the housekeeper there. And she's like, oh, yeah, I would have hired her even if you guys didn't move in. So. Yeah, it seems like the grandma just kind of reached a point in her life where she's just, like, can't really do anything on her own anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, which is, I think, part of the reason why she also wants to teach, you know, her uh, granddaughter how to take care of the house. Kind of knowing that she's not going to be around forever. Especially because her husband's already gone, and it's basically just her. Yeah. So, yeah. Ghibli films. Ghibli films. (laughs) All of them are good. Yeah. So, I... 
I'm a bit hard-pressed trying to find a Ghibli film that you haven't watched. I'll find one for you. Yeah. Oh, um, what's it called? The Red Turtle? I believe that one's a Ghibli film. I haven't heard of that one. I'll, I'll look it up. I'm, I might be mistaking the name. Yeah. I know neither of us have seen The Earwig and the Witch. No, but that one's also relatively new. Yeah. Like, by relatively, I mean, you know... The newest film. Kind the of newest film. film. You know, uh, during the COVID times. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll have to find a Ghibli film that you haven't watched. Because I am trying to collect more of the Steelbook cases. So if you guys can find them for good prices, let me know. Yeah. And with that, like I said, I think this will just be a short episode. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Thank you Thanks for, listening, for listening, guys. guys. Bye. Bye.